What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Masters of Community podcast. My name is David Spinks, founder of CMX and VP of Community at Bevy. Each week, I bring you an expert who will help you take your community to the next level. Thank you so much for joining me. Let's dive into today's episode. Hey, everyone. I just want to give you a quick heads up that my new book, The Business of Belonging, How to Make Community Your Competitive Advantage, is now available anywhere where you can buy books on Amazon and any bookstore. It is the complete collection of everything I've learned from the last 13 years and how to build community for your business and all of the frameworks and models that the CMX team has developed to teach businesses how to do this work. It's all in here. I really appreciate all your support. You can go and order it now. Today, we are sharing an interview that I did at CMX Summit 2021 with the one and only Seth Godin, who was our closing keynote career hero of mine. His book, Tribes, literally defined a lot of my early career path and gave me a lot of the language about the community industry that I would be able to use to define what we ended up building with CMX and and all the work that I've done in community. So this interview was an absolute dream come true for me. He's someone that if you don't know him, I mean, he's just such a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. He's written countless books. He's got one of the most popular blogs in the world. You're just going to absolutely love this interview as much as I did. I know it. Let's dive in. Oh, and one more thing. Remember, we want to hear from you. It's always hard in podcasts to be broadcasting and not get to hear back from all of you, especially for community builders like you. I want to know, is this content resonating? Are you learning from it? What are your insights that you want to add? So please email us at pod at cmxhub.com. And let us know what you thought of the episode, share your own experiences, share your own insights, and we'll be picking some of your great responses to include in future episodes at the end of the episode. All right, so pod at cmxhub.com. Let us know what you think of this episode and you'll have the chance to be included in a future one. Thanks so much. Welcome back to the main stage, everybody. I hope you all took a photo of yourself and how you're watching CMX Summit. This is the session a lot of you have been waiting for. Long before community was considered the new moat, this iconic author was at the forefront of what it means to turn a scattering of followers into a mission-oriented community. In this fireside chat moderated by our very own David Spinks, VP of Community at Bevy and founder of CMX, we're going to cover the marketer's newfound voice, the power of leading, and the importance of community's continuous rise. Your virtual standing ovations so far have been remarkable, but now it's time to prepare to send the most emojis you've ever sent at a CMX event. Please join me in welcoming to the virtual stage, Seth Godin. Boom. Thank you. Wow. I really appreciate it. And I just want to start by saying, you know, if you're in the snack business and you have a, a snack convention, the snacks better be good. But watching what you folks have put together here, watching, I mean, I don't know where the puppies are, but the chickens and the photo booth, but more than that, just the positive energy and emotion and magic. Bravo to every single person on this team. Blew me away. Just blew me away. Thank you, Seth. That means a lot. Should we just end there? I mean, I feel like floating already. Seth Godin just said we're doing a great job of building community. (laughs) Love it. All right. So we got good snacks here. Thanks, Beth. We'll see you soon, Beth. Seth, very, very excited to chat today. I think I speak for many of the people here at this event that your work and your books were inspirations to me from the very early days of my career as a community manager over 13 years ago. Like Tribes came out right at the time that my career was starting and just gave me the language and the words and like taught me that this could even be a profession. So quite literally, CMX and this whole thing would not exist if it weren't for you and your work and your books. So I want to just start off with a massive amount of gratitude for you. I'm a little choked up because it takes a year for a book to come out. So you got to tell the truth in advance sometimes. And this whole idea that there is a profession of community and that it was going to become as widespread as it became. You know, when I started writing about email marketing, everyone thought I was delusional. And when I was writing about this, I mean, even well-known people said I was delusional. And to watch the people on this event 
and how they've built something real and provided so much solace during the last couple of years for people who really needed it. It's magnificent to see. Really exciting. Yeah, well, I know the feeling of working on something that people didn't believe in, but because you were brave enough to say it was important before me, it gave me, I think, a lot of bravery to be able to continue to say that. And anyway, let's dive in. I have one thing I want to say before we start, which is we can't call anybody on this call a community manager. I think we have to end the whole idea of community management. I think we're talking about community leadership because management and leadership aren't the same thing. And I live near the Hudson River in New York. On a good day, I get to go out in my boat. And there are barges on the Hudson. And what amazed me at first was that tugboats don't tug, they push. Because it's much more efficient to push than to tug. But tugging and pushing are both forms of management. You're telling the boat what to do. And if you look up when you're paddling, you see birds in formation. And birds in formation are really efficient as they fly. But the lead bird can't insist than any of the other birds do exactly what they want. They are leading with enrollment. And that's what it means to be the most effective kind of community leader. And so maybe you have to tell your boss, your manager, but I think you're a leader. Very well said. I think you're going to get a lot of agreement in that from this community. We actually talk a lot in CMX about community management being a sort of misnomer, both because of what you described, you can't really manage it, but also it kind of became the title that was used to define this industry, like you're a community manager. But we really try to use even a community professional at CMX to speak to kind of the broad range of levels and skill sets and different kinds of roles within communities. So it's much larger than even what they're defining community management as. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'd love to hear a little bit just from your personal story first. We've heard from a lot of speakers today about their experience coming into community work. And pretty much across the board, they all say that they fell into it. They didn't like plan on being a community leader. They didn't plan on doing this work professionally, but it just was part of who they were, usually some part of their life that made them really care about people and community. And now they find themselves being, you know, this is their life, this is their career. So I'm curious, what experiences in your life brought you to care so much about community? I think most of us, if we are high-functioning human beings, come from a history of community. We just didn't notice it. So the big breakthrough for me was noticing it before most of my peers. So it started for me, I don't tell the story very often, it started for me in 1978 in Algonquin Park, Canada, north of Toronto. And I took over a moribund program to summer camp where I grew up. And the kids had choices. They could do anything they wanted as long as they did something. And most of them went sailing and most of them went windsurfing because that was more fun. And I had to sell them on getting in a canoe all by themselves and fighting the wind. And what I discovered is I couldn't tell them what to do. And what I discovered is that me showing up with a big smile on my face wasn't sufficient. But if the other kids were there, they came. And if you could create a culture and a continuity around the change we're trying to make, everything got easier. And then five years later, after business school, I launched the first line of science fiction adventure games with Ray Bradbury and Arthur C. Clarke. And again, I had money to spend on advertising. But what I learned early on is that my ads didn't work. What worked is if one science fiction fan or one computer game fan told the other one. And this idea that you need to be there because everyone else is going to be there, people like us do things like this. That was a long time ago. I'm talking 40 years ago. And it's now more true because virtual eliminates barriers of time and space. The discourse means that you can have a community that's 24-7. I don't have to be there when you posted something. And I don't have to be in the same town as you. I don't have to be in the same canoe as you. But if the same people that I care about are in the room, I'm coming. And so I noticed it a long time ago. I just didn't have words for it. But I pretty much built my whole career around it. I think... What you're describing is really interesting. I know you talk a lot in a lot of your books. You talk a lot about it in This Is Marketing as well as kind of the role of status in community building and marketing. I'm curious to get your take on just how should community builders be thinking about the role of status when they're building community, both in terms of is it important for them to have status as leaders in the community? And then how can they efficiently give members of the community status? This is such a great topic. Thank you for bringing this up. So we're going to take a minute to take it to pieces. First, let's talk about the tension. The tension is if you just started 
an open Facebook group or just started an open discussion board in whatever, uh, Slack, and left, it wouldn't take 15 minutes for Godwin's law to kick in. It would quickly devolve to nothing. If there is no structure, there is no community. If you go into a bank in, with a stocking over your head, they don't ask if they can help you. They call the cops. That we need structure in order to be able to live in community. So your job is to put up boundaries. Your job is to create, at some level, barriers. Your job is to filter molecules from one another to create the kind of energy that people want to enroll in. It's a bouncer that makes the nightclub work. Because if everyone is in the nightclub at all times doing anything they want, no one wants to go to the nightclub. So with that said, what is our job? And I think our job is two parts. Our job is affiliation and dominance. And these are called status roles. Affiliation means who am I with? Who am I next to? Who's wearing what I am wearing? Am I speaking the same language? Are we in sync? People like us do things like this. And this idea of affiliation is the fuel to get your community started. So if you're in a woodworking community and this woodworking community is all about hand tools, and somebody shows up and starts talking about using a table saw, they're not part of it. You're not one of us. You can't have insiders if you don't have outsiders. But then there's the second piece, and it's the second piece that requires real guts on the part of the organizer. And this piece is status roles and dominance. Who's up, who's down, who's leading and who's following. So if we go back a couple thousand years to Catholic Church, right, with bishops and archbishops and popes, and right, there's a hierarchy there on purpose. For a good reason, because it creates a structure that enables a community, a tribe to last for thousands of years. And the same thing is true when, for example, you as a community leader give an emoji or a shout out to someone who's doing the kind of thing you want done, because you are at some level anointing them with a high five that gives them status in front of other people. And now the other people realize that for them to get status, they have to do something along those lines. The same way when you kick out a troll, kicking out the troll is an essential way of asserting and establishing who is where in the hierarchy. And I am not aware of one perfectly flat organization community that thrives. I can't think of one. If you can think of one, I'd love to hear about it. I can't. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, there's a lot of conversations now even around these kind of flat organizations or decentralized autonomous organizations, leaderless organizations. When in reality, I think leadership always forms. And I think the point you're bringing up is an important one, specifically because it can bring up some discomfort in a lot of people who do this work of building community when we want to be inclusive, right? We want more people to have access to the communities we're building. And sometimes hierarchy and power dynamics can also feel a little icky when we're trying to just like connect with people. But I agree. I think it's a realistic part of community building is there's always going to be people who don't belong, people who do belong. There's always going to be structure to how power is distributed in the community. And you just have to do, you have to shape it intentionally and make sure you're not excluding people who otherwise should be in the community. And the only time people complain about hierarchy and power dynamics is when the boat isn't going where they told the boat was going to go. So if you're on the Staten Island Ferry, you don't say, how come that person gets to drive? Why don't they just let anybody who wants to drive? Because it's going to Staten Island and that's what you signed up for. Right? Where we get into trouble is when people commit to a journey and then all of a sudden power hungry leader takes it somewhere else or doesn't help us get to where we want to go. So what it means to be a professional is to make a promise and to keep it. And if you're not comfortable making a promise and keeping it, then you're a clerk, not a leader. And I think we don't have room for community clerks in this conference. What we are talking about is how will you step up, raise your hand and saying, I'm making a promise. Who wants to follow me? Who wants to be part of where we are going? Mm, I like that. It's kind of like taking your seat as a leader as well, which is something that doesn't always come naturally for those of us who want to help people as well. And I'll give you a quick aside about this because we've been talking for 15 minutes and haven't mentioned the Grateful Dead once. The Grateful Dead, number one grossing rock group in America, more than 15 years without a top 40 hit did it because they had a group, a community that went from show to show. And then something really bad happened, which is it had a top 40 hit, just one. 
And what it did never went near number one, but it was a top 40 hit. And what Touch of Grey did was bring in a whole bunch of people who were there for the wrong reason. They brought in people who were there for drugs and violence. They weren't there for people who wanted to be part of the family. And the mistake that the community made is they didn't say, not around here, not on our watch. That behavior isn't welcome here. And that's why the last few years, we talked to people who toured with the dead, felt different. Because people were welcome, but what you need to say is welcome to do what? And this is the way it is around here. Hmm. I like that. And I happen to live a block away from Haight-Ashbury, where the summer love was, Grateful Dead. So very local here. And I mean, I think it's a really interesting point as well, because it's a common question I think we hear in this space of, can you scale community? Can you scale that authenticity? Right? Like every community, I think, if they reach a certain level of size and maturity, will have kind of the new group of members who come in with fresh eyes and fresh experiences and, and bring something new to the community. And then you have the established members who kind of dig their feet into the ground and say like, well, now everything's different, right? Like Burning Man's happening right now. I hear that all the time of Burning Man. People are like, ah, it's not the same. But like I went there for the first time five years ago and it was incredible for me because it was the first time there. But people who had a different expectation of it early on they're like, well, it's not what I first came for. It's right. not what I came to be comfortable with. Yeah. So let's dive into this for a little bit. As Yogi Berra said, no one goes there anymore. It's too crowded. It will never be the same again. That's true for every community. We can begin by talking about the word authenticity. So if you go to Comic-Con and somebody gets on stage to talk, I don't know, about the new Star Trek movie, you don't want them to be authentic. You actually want them to be the best version of young Spock they know how to be. You're not there to hear them talk about the fact that they had an argument with their kids that morning. That's a different sort of keeping Tom thing that sometimes works in little corners of the internet. But authenticity isn't nearly as important as consistency. Are you consistently bringing me the experience in the community that I came to expect, that I promised, that I was promised? So I was at TED when there were 300 people and I was at TED when there were 5,000 people. And what Chris did in changing the TED community was change it on purpose because he couldn't keep the promise of what's it like when there are 300 people here and also have 5,000 people there. So you have to change the promise. But that doesn't mean that you talk to people about how you feel at all times. That's not what professionals do. Professionals say, we're going to do it this way and these are what you're going to get and this isn't what you're going to get. And we know that that means some people might want to move on because they want something more intimate. They want something less structured. Good luck to you. Here's a link. You can go start your own thing. But now what this community does is this. And if it's not you who's making that call, then you've surrendered to the mob and we need you instead to lead. And leadership involves saying, this is where I'm going. Who wants to come? I love that. I love the change on purpose. I think a lot of the time we kind of just get caught up and swept up in the change of our community. And sometimes that ends up being something that even the leaders didn't want and even the members didn't want. And so being really intentional about that change is super important. I want to zoom out a little bit. So you wrote Tribes in 2008, 13 years ago. Yeah, long time ago. Lots changed since then, right? Community has changed. The platforms we use to talk to each other have changed. How we experience community has changed. There's the loneliness epidemic happening at the same time. Now we're all virtual because of COVID, which yep. also brings more accessibility. Like we hear from people at this event who love that they can come to this conference from anywhere and they're introverted. So they love it being online instead of in person. Lots of positive and negative stuff has changed. I'm curious just to hear what do you see as the things that have fundamentally changed in terms of how we experience community today? And what do you think we need to be focusing on? Like, what is the community need of humanity today? I think the biggest thing that's worth focusing on is at the very same time that this was rising, mass media was falling apart. And what that meant is that 75 years of industrialism, which were based on the idea that you should make average stuff for average people and then spend money to introduce the masses so you get shelf space so you can sell it to everyone. That's every brand you can think of from the 60s, 70s, 80s. All of a sudden, it stopped working like it used to. And then we kick in with the long tail. And then we kick in with the community. And when those pieces all aligned, what it meant was 
that the big boss has shifted from, how do I stay in charge by spending cash to steal attention to sell average stuff to average people, to how do I do it with and for small groups of people, I call it the smallest viable audience, that want this specific thing. And all of a sudden, the power shifts. So my cousin is very into, I don't even know what it's called, the kind of rock and roll that is played so loud that they give earphones to everyone when they come into the room. And you can actually feel the bass in your bones. That's why you're going. And if the musicians who made that started acting like the record labels did in the 70s or 80s, the people would evaporate. It can't work. Those 1,000 true fans, the people who will drive four hours out of their way to be in the room, that's the core of the whole thing. It's not about getting on the radio. They're never going to get on the radio. It's them. And so the shift is that professionals in the community space need to realize the company needs you more than you even acknowledge, that they don't have an alternative anymore, that you need a seat at the table, not when the product is done. You deserve a seat at the table when the product is being planned. That in fact, everyone in the company works for the head of community. The way you answer the phone, your pricing, what you're dumping into the river, who you're hiring, your DEI strategy, all of these things report to the head of community. Because if there is no community, there is no company. Damn. We're going to be using that quote for a long time here in CMX. I'm sure you're getting a lot of snaps in the chat right now. Uh, she segues into like another topic I want to dive into. We actually had a session earlier today with the CEO of a company called Venify. And someone asked the CEO, how can community prove its value to all these other teams, to marketing, to product, to support, et cetera. And he had a response that aligns very much with yours. He said, it's not about that. It's actually how do those teams prove their value to the community? And it's that like jumped out at me. It was such a fundamental shift in mindset from traditional business. And it seems so core to what needs to happen in order for companies to truly invest in community and do this work correctly you actually said something in, in This Is Marketing. You said that truly powerful marketing is grounded in generosity, empathy, and emotional labor. And we're seeing more and more companies now start to talk about community, start to believe in it, start to invest in it. A lot of them are talking about community-led growth. I'm curious, like, what's the difference between community and marketing? Is what you're talking about the same thing? Are they actually completely different things? They overlap. So I want to go back. These are such great questions. You're really making me think hard, and I appreciate this. Let's go back 10 minutes. If you, as the representative community, go into the organization and give every single person in your community the same sort of voice in the organization, you will fail. Because back to this idea of the Staten Island Ferry. If you get on the Staten Island Ferry and you loudly complain that you're upset because it's not going to Cuba, don't bring that person to the front of the room and make sure they have a voice. They're not entitled to a voice. It's not the Cuba ferry. It's the Staten Island ferry. They are on the wrong boat. So a lot of this begins with your willingness to ask people who are on the wrong boat to get off. They're entitled in a democracy to talk about the government, but they are not entitled in your community to be a troll. And if the organization and the community have decided not to go where they wanted to go, it's not your job to amplify that. So with that said, generosity doesn't mean free. Generosity doesn't mean lowering the price of what you do or giving it away. Generosity means showing up with emotional labor to do difficult work some people might not think you need to do. And so what does that mean? It means that someone who's truly generous, truly generous as a heart surgeon, is bringing that extra energy in the face of something that might not work. They're spending the extra time to read up on your particular case. So they're not just phoning it in. That's the generosity we want when we're going in for heart surgery. And empathy says, I don't know what you know. I don't see what you see. I don't believe what you believe, but that's okay. And if you can't add, and that's okay, then why would they listen to you? And that's why it's so important to make sure we're on the right boat. Because if someone is on the right boat, if there is a kid in your public school class, but they just can't read the letters of the alphabet, you weren't born dyslexic, but they're having a different experience than you. 
extending yourself to them in that moment with empathy, as opposed to yelling at them, is part of what it is to get your point across. That's my foundation. And then I can answer your question, which is marketing is not advertising. It is telling true stories that spread, stories that change people's opinion or their actions. And one of the key elements of all of that is that there's a community of people that care about what you're doing and want to go where you're going. And the more we can connect those people and amplify them, the more likely it is that our marketing will succeed. So that was a rant, Mm. but there you go. Yeah, it's a complex kind of thing to think through. Is there like, what do you see when a company is thinking about this the wrong way of, we kind of see this a lot. We see a lot of companies using community as a term that they're using to market, but they're not genuinely investing in community. And on the ferry analogy, you're also on that ferry with leaders in your own company that may not get it, right? Like you may have executives that are still trying to figure out how is community driving value for us, not how we're driving community a value for the community. And so what do you see as the wrong way that companies are trying to make community and marketing work? Let's say they have the right intentions, but they're still coming at it from the traditional marketing mindset. Where is that misalignment often coming from? Well, most people who start organizations, count me in, are narcissists. And we look in the mirror and see a lot of people and think that we have something to contribute. One of the downsides of this is you think you have a tribe and you probably don't. Wendy's doesn't have a tribe or a community. Oreos doesn't have a community, right? Oreos is busy tweeting away about stuff to entertain a group of people, but they're not identified to each other as part of the Oreo tribe. On the other hand, for a while before Tim Cook got there, there was definitely an Apple community in the sense that if I was wearing my laptop under my arm as a badge in the airport, and I saw you carrying one too, for whatever reason, there felt like some sort of connection there. And we've got to be really clear when we talk about community. Is it the community of people that we get a chance to narrate for? So I don't have a tribe. I don't have a community, but there are people who would exist even if I disappeared, who I get to narrate for, who I get to minister to, who I get to give words to so they can go back to their circles and run with them. But I have never been under the illusion that they work for me or belong to me or wouldn't exist if I wasn't here. So most of the time, most organizations need to find the humility to say, oh yeah, there's a community out there. How can we feed it? Because if we feed it, we will earn permission. Permission will get us attention. Attention will get us trust. And trust will get us the benefit of the doubt, which will give us a chance to do it again. And I wrote more words for Fast Company Magazine than most people. Bill and Alan never thought that the Fast Company community was theirs. Instead, they said, look, there's this whole bunch of disconnected people who are on the cutting edge of things like co-working and tech or whatever. Let's whisper to them. Let's give them something to talk about. And that is how you build a $400 million magazine, not by insisting they're yours. Mm. I'll ask you a question that I get asked all the time then. Does every company need to invest in community? Like, does Oreo need to invest in community? Okay, so if your company's heritage is based on television and shelf space, life is going to get harder for you every year. And there's no one watching this who's chewing a piece of Black Magic, whatever that brand of gum is that's now out of business. Because it was a big deal 40 years ago, but can't keep it going. So those brands are playing with social media, but it's never, Procter & Gamble's golden days are behind it. On the other hand, if we think about a pharma company, you know what? The people who are unfortunately dealing with the pain of having kids with juvenile diabetes, that is quite a closely knit community. And if you can go figure out how to help them and lead them and offer them solace, they will respect you in turn. That's better than running a two-page ad in Reader's Digest magazine, right? And so what happens is if you make a thing, a service or product that lends itself to a community that already exists, they will probably welcome you. But don't get hung up on owning and operating the platform. Because if you do that, you only have a tiny fraction of those people anyway. So it's a good segue. Actually, there's a good question that Sarah Weinreb from the community had suggested ahead of this. 
kind of talking about like how many communities there are now, right? It's like the barrier to launching a community has never been lower. I like to say the barrier to having an engaged community has never been higher. So her question was, how do you overcome this saturated market where everyone's kind of burned out, a little exhausted with online community, a little exhausted with virtual events? What are the things that we should be doing today to make our communities really compelling and unique? Yeah, I think that if we talk to most people, they would say they are burned out at someone calling them on the phone, trying to sell them an extended warranty for their car. But (laughs) nobody I know is burned out if one of their 25 closest friends calls them up and asks them about something they really care about. So again, we just use the same name to describe the phone calls, but the phone calls couldn't be more different. And the same thing is true with community. If you're going to build a community that's in the right place at the right time with the right energy for me in a given moment, I will have no problem with joining it. And I will not say there are too many communities to choose from. On the other hand, if you build a community that's about hype and hustle and manipulation, it doesn't matter if I have no other communities in my life. I'm not joining that one. And this is the problem that we have when big companies, you know, the CEO is on a plane, reads one article, and all of a sudden decides that this is the new big thing. And they throw $4 million at it and think they've solved the problem. That's not what any of this is about. This is about being by and for and with people who care. And if you are not making something that people who care care about, you better make something else. Right. So it goes back to like having the real value, the real connection, despite the platform, right? There could be a thousand Facebook groups, but if you have one where the relationships are real and you're really investing in them, you're really creating value, doesn't matter if it's on Facebook, doesn't matter if there's a thousand other communities because it becomes part of their, their inner network. Yeah, exactly. I'm curious, where do you think the world of, on the thread of like platforms and even think about the phone as a community platform, where do you think the future of community platforms are going? There are people who are talking about like the metaverse, Mark Zuckerberg's having awkward roundtable discussions now with people with their gifts using VR. There's talk of DAOs and decentralized communities. So what does the future of community technology look like in your mind? First, I think almost every roundtable with Mark Zuckerberg is awkward. I don't think that part (laughs) is new. But leaving that part aside, we've had community since cave people. And the technology is there to serve this ultimate goal of people coming together, not the other way around. And I have built effective communities around campfires, and I have done it in Discourse, one of my favorite platforms. When it's working, the tech starts to become invisible. When it's not working, the boundaries show up in places that we don't want them to. And VR and AR have been the next big thing for the last 10 years. It's likely (laughs) that they will eventually come along, but you're not going to win by finding the next big thing. You're going to win by finding the oldest big thing, which is what does it mean to be seen? What does it mean to be missed if you're not there? What does it mean to be understood, because that is in really, really short supply. How do you do that in your communities? Well, I think the intentionality is a key part of it. It begins by saying, we don't want to build the easiest to enter a community, because easy in, easy out. And if people care enough about where the community is going, they'll figure it out. And then be really clear about where it's going. And quickly get rid of the trolls and do it publicly, and quickly applaud the heroes and do it publicly, and keep finding people doing something right, and then create these gradations of hierarchy. They don't have to be fancy labels, but people will figure out who's where and who needs to be followed and what does it mean to be in this conversation versus that conversation. And then find the people who've been inadvertently left out and promote them so they come back in and figure out which people are there for the right reason. And if they drift away, go figure out how to get them to come back. Because when you save somebody in that situation there, it's worth 10 of attracting a new one, right? And so this is all humanity. This is not tech I'm talking about, but this is precisely how you build a high-functioning restaurant kitchen and how you build a high-functioning summer camp. They're all on the same spectrum, which is somebody is weaving together a community to go forward. And I remember, so to take my own advice, I started a community around tribes when the book came out. And it was about 1,500 people. 
And it probably took me three hours a day for a year to run that community. That wasn't the plan. The plan was open the door, set it up, and I'll go back to work. But what became (laughs) clear to me is if there wasn't somebody who was willing to actually create boundaries, we were going to quickly devolve into a mess. And I learned an enormous amount from running that community. One person who I'm still in touch with was homeless at the time. And because of the connection that the community was able to make with or and around her, she saw a way forward. She got herself out of her situation, but being surrounded by people, we weren't talking about a book. I certainly wasn't trying to get them to sell my book. It was simply, what would it be like to organize a community of community organizers? And I mean, it's been 10, 15 years and it's still, those people are still doing it. The ripples are real. And I noticed a few people have asked about P&L type questions. They're missing, their bosses are missing the point because these are questions about why are we here and how are we going to get to where we're going? Not, please show me how much money we made last week. I want to give a shout out to Susie Nelson. She inspired the platform question. And one more question that came from the community ahead of time that I think is relevant here. I'm curious, how do you think about charging for communities, having paid communities? I know you have a bunch of communities where you pay for membership versus free communities, because I think you've done both, right, over the years? Yes. And to be clear, the the cohort-based platform I started, Akimbo, I don't own it or run it anymore. It's an independent B Corp in the public interest. Super proud of what they're doing, but it's not me anymore. I don't want to take credit for that. There's a lot to be said for making a promise that is so significant, people pay you, because then they hold you to account. And it's harder at first to make a promise like that. It also leads to spectacular cognitive dissonance in a good way because people pay for a community, have a lot of feeling of sunk cost. They're less likely to quit. They're more likely to get through the hard parts at the beginning. On the other hand, as Chris Anderson has written about, there's a huge gap between all that and free. Free adds a zero or two zeros or three zeros. And if you're going to do that, A, the promise cannot include And we're going to be here 24-7 looking you right in the eye at all times because you're not paying for that. Instead, it has to be much more peer-to-peer that when we have something peer-to-peer, like, say, Alcoholics Anonymous, first of all, they're not anonymous. But secondly, where's their headquarters and how does the whole thing work? Well, it works because it's an algorithm. It's a protocol. It is one of the original DAOs because it's got no one apparently in charge. But there's a method for how we build a cell. And that is one of the methods that can be used to galvanize communities at scale. Not because you're going to get paid for it, but because people like us do things like this. Yeah. And just to call out that model, I think that's something Rosie Sherry is one of our community members talks about like the repeatability. So like the Alcoholics Anonymous model of like having the template that someone else can come and replicate and replicate and replicate. That is really like where the community magic happens. And you can do that at scale without financially sustainably as well. Okay, well, I have a ton more questions. I want to make sure we leave time at the end for questions from the Q&A from the community. So if you haven't already, post your questions in the Q&A and vote them up. We're going to get to them right after my favorite part of a lot of the interviews that I do, the rapid fire question round. Seth, I have some rapid fire questions where I will ask them in normal okay. time and you will answer them quickly. Sound good? Bring it on. I have Ready? a buzzer. All right. <laughs> okay. All right. Question number one. I think this is a question that everyone's been wondering this whole time. Where do you buy your glasses? Oh, I forgot to change them in the middle. We made a deal about that. <laughs> yeah, we uh, forgot our plan. <laughs> when, when my eyesight started to fade, I realized clear glasses weren't going to cut it. Back when I used to travel and shop and stuff, I found a little place on the lower east East side, East Village of Manhattan called Franny's Fabulous. And these are mostly new old stock. This one came from Moscot, but it's a little too heavy for me. So I don't wear it that much. So there's two leads for you. I don't buy them online. Sorry, team. Sorry, Warby. All right. Well, follow up question. How do you decide which one? I have a deal with Neil. I have a deal. Sorry sorry to interrupt. I have a deal with Neil at Warby. He's a friend. He's agreed not to make (laughs) any of the glasses that I wear. And I've agreed not to say anything nasty about Warby Parker. So <laughs> I only buy mine at Warby, so I'll give them a shout out. They're great. Everyone wins. See, 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 <laughs> do you know the school bus story? 
because the school bus story is relevant. So here's the no. deal. Is, it, is Parker, it a rapid fire answer? <laughs> Warby Parker was doing great online. They wanted to open stores. But they didn't know where to open the stores. So they bought a school bus and outfitted the whole thing like an eyeglass store. And then they parked it in zip codes where their data showed they had a lot of online customers. And every single time they opened a real store, it worked because they had practiced with their community. Love it. All right, we'll move on. Next question. What's your favorite book to give as a gift or to recommend to others that's not one of the 20 books that you've written? I give out many copies of The Art of Possibility and many copies of The War of Art. They have confusing titles and they're both magical. (laughs) I haven't heard of The Art of Possibility. War of Art's a great book. Oh, read it right away. Read it, read it, read it. I will. I'm going to do it tonight. (laughs) All right, next question. What's a go-to community engagement tactic or conversation starter that you like to use in your communities? Tell me how you got here. What led Mm. to you being who you are? Or how did you get this job? Or what is it about this that is working for you? The second one is for more intimate communities. What was it like at the dinner table when you were growing up? I like that. Well, I mean, I feel like I have to turn that around now. What was it like at the dinner table when you were growing up? It was magic. Two amazing parents who spent lots of time giving us time to talk about where we were and where we were going. Mm, I love that. That adds up with your personality. (laughs) All right, next question. Who in the world of community would you most like to take out for lunch? Could be dead or alive. Oh, how about whichever the disciples figured out how to go from being a tiny sect to a worldwide religion? Not because I have any personal connection to that, but because they made a whole bunch of intuitive decisions. Just one example, if you were an Orthodox Jew in the year 10, you needed to get circumcised. And the only people who were Christian in the year 10 were Orthodox Jews. So if you tried to get someone to join, first they had to get circumcised. That's a tough sell to a 30-year-old. So they just took that rule out of the rule book. A lot of really cool things, 10 by 10 by 10. Plus, I could get to say I had lunch with them. (laughs) That would be an interesting lunch. All right. Next question. What's a community product that you wish existed? Patience. I think we need to figure out a way to let people who are being patient know that they might be onto something. Mm, I wonder what that product would look like. Well, you didn't ask me to build it. You just asked me to describe it. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, you, you shared the problem. Someone out there can figure out the solution. All right. What's something that you wish more people asked you? This was a question from Piper Wilson in our community. How can I put myself on the hook? All right. How can you put yourself most on of the, the hook? Most of the questions, if you look through past things that have been on all day here, have been, how do I get my boss to let me do X, Y, or Z? And what's a subtext of that is without me having to take responsibility for guaranteeing to work. And organizations are bad at handing out authority and they're good at giving out responsibility. And so if we can figure out how to find ourselves willing to take responsibility, over time, we tend to get more authority. So to dig into that just for a moment, it sounds like we're a lot of the questions, a lot of the conversations we're having in this space kind of have this message of how do we get others to buy into this? How do we convince executives? It's kind of giving the responsibility to them to like make a decision or make an investment. But there's a level of responsibility that we need to take on and own and be accountable to. Right. Because guess what? You don't need a lot of cash to build community. You're not asking for $50 million for an ad campaign. And so if you just do stuff, It doesn't completely undermine the brand, but you do it and you build it and you share your mistakes and you own them and you give away credit to the bosses, they will be much more likely to say, please do more of that. I like that. It goes back earlier, you said minimum or uh, smallest viable audience, I think. We in the community industry like to call it the minimum viable community. There's very simple things you can start just doing. Just do it, get results, learn, and bring that to the executives rather than asking for permission first. Right. And I don't mean to criticize the people on this call because you've been treated like cogs your whole life. You've been pushed to only do multiple choice stuff. You've been encouraged to fill in a box on an org chart. So that's what we got indoctrinated to do. But in times of change, none of those things are satisfying or effective. And so given that you're the smartest person in the room, in almost any room you go into, what a moment to say, 
I'm not going to let somebody else wait for somebody else to take responsibility. I'm just doing this. And then I'll send them a report about how well it worked. Love it. All right. Just a few more. Then we're going to open up to community questions. And we got a lot of really good ones in here. Remember, post them in there. Give a thumbs up to the ones you like. This one actually came from ahead of the event as well, from Greg Bulmash. He said, what's the worst mess you've ever had to clean up? I like this one. Oh, my goodness. Well, it's a rapid fire question. So the short version is I almost got arrested. AOL was my biggest client. And Carter Wallace was our second biggest client. And we were inventing email marketing. And one day, we sent all the arid extra dry customers in AOL email and all the AOL customers a deodorant email. And that was when AOL was really on a tear and doing well. And we screwed up. And then the next week, we did it again. And I called up the senior VP at AOL and said, look, words aren't enough, but I'm going to fly down to Virginia just to apologize to your face. We messed up. And Audrey said, if you set foot on this campus in Vienna, Virginia, I will have you arrested. And (laughs) I just had to look at my team. I had to look in the mirror. I had to look at my investors and say, it might be over. And we dug in deep and we survived, but it was a mess. That's a great story. I think any story that starts with, I almost got arrested, is definitely going to be a good one. All right, a couple more. What's the weirdest community you've ever been a part of? I was almost part of the balloon animal community and almost part of the mascots with those big woolly head community. They both asked me to speak. I talked about them in my TED Talk. They both exist. And in the balloon animal community, there's a schism between the gospel balloon animal people and the porn balloon animal people. But that's a whole other story we won't go into. But I've been on the fringes of some pretty cool communities. And in terms of my hobbies, I make cherry wood canoe paddles. I like listening to really weird stereo equipment. So there's two kinds of communities that are fun to fringe out with. I love it. I heard about one this past week. I asked on Twitter if people know about weird niche communities. And my favorite one, I don't know if you know about this, it's a Facebook group where 1.8 million people are pretending to be ants in an ant colony. Do you know about this one? No, but I think I got the joke. That's fantastic. I feel like you would love it. Like I spent five minutes in there and I was just roll The amount of puns that are in there, this community will absolutely love it. You should have seen all the sailing puns this morning. It's right up our alley. Okay, my last rapid fire question. We'll turn it over to the community. If you were to find yourself on your deathbed today and you had to condense all of your life lessons into one Twitter-sized piece of advice for the rest of the world on how to live, what would that advice be? From my dad. I miss him. Two words. It was the motto of his hospital crib company, which still is in business. My sister runs it. And the two words are care more. Yeah, I like that advice. All right. Good note now to wrap up my questions and start asking some of our community's questions for you. So first one here from Douglas Moran. Hey, Seth, I appreciate very much what you said about leaders versus managers. But as someone who has spent my career focusing on engagement and nurturing, a word I'm not really in love with, but it's what we have, I really am not a fan of marketing-y terms. And community leader instead of community manager sounds like the kind of thing a marketer would come up with, similar to sanitation engineer rather than janitor, kind of whitewashing it a little bit, I guess. A bit pompous and off-putting to our members, as it were. Can you speak to that a bit? Yeah, I think you should call yourself a janitor. I'm fine with that. I think that the goal here is words have a function. And internally, if you're sitting at the table and you've gotten been given a title that makes it sound like you're a level three manager, you're not being heard the way that chief marketing officer is. But when you're talking in community, call yourself a janitor, whatever you want. Because the key here is, How do I know who I'm talking to? That the community, like the well, the only thing I knew about you 30 years ago was your handle and whether you made a lot of typos. Well, now we got all this other stuff. Is your camera in focus? I'm judging you whether it is or not, et cetera. And one of the clues I have is whether you have a badge and whether you have a title. And you can ignore all of them if you want. Don't have any. But by not having any, you're giving up some leverage, and you can do that or not. It's up to you. I agree. I I think like titles are really important in the world of community and the professional world in general. For better or worse, it it matters and it has influence and gets you more buy-in. So chief community officers, hoping to see a lot more chief community officers in the coming years. All right, next question is from Desmond Patrick. 
What are your three favorite podcasts right now? Oh, they're all over the map. But if you're not listening to 99% Invisible, you're missing out. Roman is spectacular. My friend Brian Koppelman's podcast about creativity called The Moment is really great. Lately, I've been listening to audiobooks more than podcasts because as the industry turns into an industry, the commercials get a little tiresome and getting a little repetitive. Uh, Ministry for the Future is the most recent book I listened to. It will change your life. Love it. All right. Next question is from Chris B. People on the wrong boat are not welcome. How does that relate to current discussions around diversity and inclusion? How do you know who's on the wrong boat? Right. So let me just be as clear as I can. We have a horrible track record in this country. People who look like me, who have uh, who were born on the 99-yard line, of not giving people the benefit of the doubt, of perpetuating racial injustice. That having a program, calling it DEI, and then hoping it goes away is not what I am talking about, nor is anybody here talking about it. But there's a difference between stereotyping people and actually asking where they want to go. So if you are running a fast food restaurant and somebody comes in and says, I'm a vegan, I'm allergic to nuts, and I don't eat flour, it is appropriate to say to that person, there's a health food store four doors down. And it doesn't matter what they look like. They've told you where they want to go. So I care about psychographics way more than demographics. If we are judging people by easily measured census data, we are almost certainly making a mistake and we are keeping them from getting what they need and us as well. But if we are clear about where a community is going and why, we can keep coming back to that first principle. So don't join a Star Trek community and in every single post talk about how much you hate Star Trek because you're in the wrong place and you're wasting everybody's time. At some level, community is about each other. And at some level, there's a level of groupthink. We're speaking to each other in ways that we understand, that show that we see and hear the others. And if people are in that community to undermine that community, they're either going to get what they want or you're going to get what you want, but you both can't have it. I want to build on it a little bit too. We touched on it earlier, but I think it's a really important topic. We've had a number of really incredible speakers and experts on DEI and B and J here at this event. Today, like building community is inextricable from DEI. You can't build community without having an impact on it, whether or not you mean to, right? Because if you open up a space, you are now deciding what is a social norm in that space. You can choose and influence what's accepted or not accepted. So I think what you're saying, and I think is what I often say is like, when we're talking about exclusion and excluding intentionally, it means make sure that the right people are in the room, but also that you're not excluding people that should be in there, right? So if people are hate Star Trek, they shouldn't be in the Star Trek community. They're bringing bad vibes, bad energy, not the right person. But you need to make sure that your Star Trek community isn't all white males and people of color and women don't feel comfortable in that space because Correct. you've enabled a culture that excludes those people. And so exactly. exclusion is an interesting word because we use it in these two different ways, but it can be used in good ways and it can be used in ways that are harmful. I'm so glad you clarified this. So one of the things that I've been doing in community since it was being built online, is saying the way we talk to other people is part of what it's like around here. And if you build a community where people talk to other people in ways that are hurtful, in ways that undermine their ability to contribute because of their background, you're not actually succeeding at why you set up the community. And so too often those two things are associated with each other. That It's considered okay to be a jerk simply because you care a lot about woodworking. Well, no, it's not. Because if we want this to be a community about woodworking, talking to one another and treating somebody by acting like a jerk, by bringing preconceived notions about how other people interact with us, that's not what this is. It's a woodworking community. It's not a college fraternity from Animal House. And we've got to be really clear about those things. So that's what I'm talking about when I talk about intentionality. Where are we going? And one of the things that essentially every community I can think of needs is a diversity of background, of experience, of point of view, as long as people are going in the same direction. 
there are no all clarinet orchestras because an all clarinet orchestra doesn't sound good. You need tubas and trumpets and violins before you end up with an orchestra. But what you also need is everybody there interested in playing music while treating each other with respect. Well said. Okay, next question. We have time for maybe two more if we can do them quick. Jen James asks, this is going back to the idea of kind of intentionally bringing change into your community. What are your best directions when cleaning up the community space or revamping it and rolling those kinds of changes out to new members? She's stressed about the uproar of change. Yeah, okay. So I can't give this answer justice. I'm going to suggest you read a book called Crossing the Chasm, which is based on a book called by Rogers called Diffusion of Ideas. And basically, in every group of people, 6 to 8% love new ideas. They're early adopters. Then there's the early majority. There's a lot of those. Then there's the late majority. There's a lot of those. And then there are a few laggards who don't want anything to change. And every time you bring anything to a community, some early adopters are going to like it and all the laggards are going to hate it. That's what they signed up for. It's true with fashion. It's true with the way people organize weddings. It's true with politics. It's true with everything. And so you can't show up with an innovation to a community and say, everyone's going to love this because they're not. What you've got to do instead is two things. One, is this going to, in the long run, help the community get to where it wants to go? Or are we simply doing this because we're going to profit? If it's the first, it's worth sticking with if you get pushback. And then the second, back to affiliation and status, is you socialize it by offering certain status roles to certain early adopters who benefit from using these things to accomplish their other goals. Because then other people, circle by circle by circle, will want that innovation until it becomes something that they choose as opposed to something that they've been forced on them. And we've seen this over and over again when a community rolls something out without thinking through these two steps because they're presuming that everyone wants the same thing and everyone doesn't want the same thing at the same time. Well said. Well said. Oh, Beth's back. All right. I think that means we're wrapping up. Well, Seth, this was incredible. I'll finish with what I started saying in the beginning that your work has been wildly, wildly impactful for me personally and for this industry. And you've enabled a whole movement of community builders, many of whom are here today. So just deeply grateful for all the work that you've done and for taking the time to hang out with me and hang out with the CMX community today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Go make a ruckus, everybody. We need your leadership. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Seth. I hope everybody is flooding the chat with their favorite emojis. I think the yellow heart is a good one, you know, inspired by Seth's fantastic yellow glasses. That was a fantastic conversation. The Q&A was going off as well. So thank you, everybody, for your engagement and your questions. Oh, my gosh, I can't believe CMX Summit 2021 is almost over. I know. It's always the saddest part right at the end. It is. Our after party starts in only three minutes. But I will say CMX Summit may be over, but CMX is forever. And we have so much going on the other 11 months of the year. We have online community spaces. We have training and education with CMX Academy. We have blogs. We have podcasts. We have virtual events. We have a newsletter. We have awards. We just have so many things. And I want you all to make sure you Click the word community at the top of your screen to join our community and check out all of our amazing resources. David, do you have any last words of inspiration before we leave? Last words of inspiration. I'm just, I just want to express a ton of gratitude. First off, thank you, Beth. Can we all give a huge, huge, huge shout out to Beth in the chat? She's been leading, bringing her energy to this community every day for the last three days. Emceeing is exhausting in person. I think it's even more exhausting online and you just absolutely crushed it. So huge amount of gratitude for Beth. I also want to give a massive, massive shout out to Anne-Marie Paulicki-Dinkle, who has put together this whole show and has been working nonstop, working with speakers, working with sponsors, working with vendors, working with AV, just making this whole show run really, really smoothly. And she's pretty behind the scenes a lot of the time. You'll see her sometimes in here in the welcome video. But just know she's just been busting her butt to make this a really special experience. And from all the feedback we've seen from you so far, 
she succeeded in that regard. This was a really special virtual CMX Summit. I've been blown away. I've felt the real connection that I think we're like missing a lot of today with virtual events. I actually felt that here. Huge thank you to all of our speakers. Huge thank you to our sponsors. Huge thank you to our volunteers. Just everybody, our AV team, everybody, the Bevy team, the Bevy platform. Platform all looked great this whole time and hopefully you've all enjoyed using it. If you want to use it for your own events, give us a shout. But I mean, this just like it's a massive, massive team effort that goes into making these three days happen, go smoothly, be really high quality. And lastly, just extremely grateful for all of you for being here, for showing up to this virtual event, despite your Zoom fatigue, for being present, for being energetic, for bringing your positivity. It's truly, it's a special community that we have here. And it's, it means a lot to all of us. It means a lot to me. Just can't thank you all enough. So hopefully that was inspiring enough for you all. It was inspiring. And I also just want to mention thank you to Valentina and Ilker and Jamie and Marsha, who are our MCs on the other stages, because I know that especially for some of them who are in European time zones, they had to stay up real late to bring you all that energy. The Masters of Community is brought to you by CMX, the world's largest network of community professionals, and Bevy, the enterprise platform powering communities for the world's leading brands. This episode was edited and produced by Finesse Media. Music was provided by Seiji Cataldo and design was provided by Virginia DeMarco. If you enjoyed this episode, please drop us a review in iTunes. It's a huge help for helping us get this podcast in front of more people. We really, really appreciate it. And share it with your networks. The more people that learn about the power of community, the better. We have a new episode every week. So until then, thank you so much for listening and see you next time.